In the year 2000, a book was published that took the Christian world by storm. Most of you likely remember the buzz surrounding this book's release. A bunch of Christians and churches jumped on its bandwagon, and it quickly became a bestseller, selling over 9 million copies. The book was about an obscure man found in the middle of the Old Testament who actually only had two verses written about him in the entire Bible. Before this book came out, no one would have been able to identify this guy. (laughs) Afterwards, everyone seemed to know who he he was. The man's name was Jabez. Probably recognize it now. The book I'm talking about was called The Prayer of Jabez by Bruce Wilkinson. It was called The Prayer of Jabez because it focused on the only words recorded from Jabez, which was a prayer asking God to bless him. It's found in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10, and it says that Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he had asked. In the book, the author proposed that we should use this prayer as kind of a model prayer. So we should pray this prayer for ourselves all the time and watch God bless us beyond our wildest dreams. As if this prayer was some kind of formula for unlocking God's blessings. Now, I had several issues with the book personally that I won't go into a lot of detail about today. Suffice to say that the premise of us praying this prayer seemed selfish to me. And this little story in the Old Testament was not a promise for God's physical blessings to us. Just because it was right for Jabez to pray it and that God answered him and in his situation does not automatically make it right for us to pray it in ours. But that aside, I was more surprised by this book. I was surprised about the emphasis that this little prayer got compared to other prayers in Scripture, more prominent, more powerful, and more exemplary prayers in Scripture. How about the prayers of David or the prayers of Elijah? Just read about one of those recently. Or the prayers of Paul or at the very top of the list. What about the prayers of Jesus? What about the prayers of Jesus? We talked about, just like I mentioned, the power of prayer recently as we went through James, looking at how God has graciously given us the ability to pray and the ability to pray with amazing power as righteous people. James really challenged us to make prayer more of a priority in our lives. So I thought it appropriate that we just take a few weeks to study prayer in a bit more depth. We're going to be looking at one prayer in particular. We're not going to be doing an exhaustive study on prayer, just a a short one. And we're going to look at one prayer, and this is a prayer of Jesus. And I believe it's way more powerful than the prayer of Jabez in in its impact and its power. Scripture records many times that Jesus prayed, but only a few times we know what he prayed or his words that he prayed. And one of the times we do know is what he prayed in John chapter 17. You can turn there in your Bibles with me. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of the pew Bibles in front of you, and it's on page 903 in your pew Bibles. John chapter 17. This is also the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. It's often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And it is a masterpiece. 
of prayer. A treasure trove is in his words here. You might ask, well, why should we study this prayer of Jesus? There's several reasons, I believe. First of all, if you look at someone's prayers, you'll often see what is most important to someone, what they value most. And in this prayer, it is easy to see what is most important to Jesus in life. I believe Jesus also taught his disciples through this prayer. He was constantly preparing them for the time after he would leave the earth and leave them behind. And this prayer was part of that preparation and teaching for them. Likewise, as his followers today, it can teach us so much about prayer, so much about God and how to pray and what to pray for, all in the context of the being in the time between Jesus' return to heaven and then his return to earth. We're in that in-between time. This prayer also reveals much of what God desires his church to be like, his desire for us. And while the prayer of Jabez is debatable, I believe prayers of Jesus can be seen as model prayers for us. So exemplary. Now, there are, of course, certain things we can't copy because Jesus was God and we're not. But the principles in this prayer can can and should influence our prayers dramatically. Finally, I believe this prayer really speaks to where we are as a church right now. In the days ahead, we need to be focused and we need to be unified. And this prayer will help us in these tasks. Well, as we talk about prayer, there really is no more fitting way to begin than to pray. And so would you pray with me that we will learn through these words and grow through Jesus' words today? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we're going to be looking at these words written down in these pages of Scripture. And I pray that you would open our eyes, not just to see the words on a page, but to see the power behind them, the principles in them. Please change our lives through what we read. Help us to be people known for a prayer. And our complete reliance on you and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are three very distinct emphases in this prayer. And today we're going to look at the very first part, which consists of the first five verses of chapter 17. And chapter 17 begins this way. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words. Okay, stop right there. The context of these verses is extremely important. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words had Jesus just spoken? Well, John 17 is at the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He had spent three and a half years traveling around Palestine, healing, teaching, working miracles, mentoring his disciples, and he had just returned to Jerusalem with his disciples, which is where he knew his ministry would soon come to an end. It was Passover season, and Jesus had made sure to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. The night before he died, he celebrated what has come to be known as the Last Supper. And after they had this meal together, they left for the Garden of Gethsemane. But at the end of the meal, before they left, John records something that happened. And none of the other Gospels include this part of the story. First of all, Jesus gave his disciples some really in-depth teaching for three and a half chapters. There's a great 
message. And you'd recognize a number of these verses, very famous verses from these chapters. He said all these things the night before he died. For example, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He also said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Or I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Greater love has no one than this, you all know this one, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Or I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That last verse was John sixteen thirty three, And immediately following those words is John 17. So this is before they head off to Gethsemane, right after the Last Supper. The mood is somber. His disciples are with him. He just got done teaching them all kinds of amazing things. And then he prays. And this is what he prayed. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We'll stop there. We can learn so many things from the way that Jesus began this prayer. But the most important focus of these verses is this. And you can fill in your notes if you want. The prayer of Jesus primarily focused on God's glory. The prayer of Jesus' most important aspect was that it focused on God's glory. It focused on God's glory first and foremost, before everything else. This is very obvious as you read these verses. Verse 1 said, Jesus said, The Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And he recaps in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word glory is an extremely important one here. And really, it's an extremely important one in our faith as a whole. Used as a verb, glory has the idea of bringing honor, praise, or worship to something. So we bring glory to God. Used as an adjective or a noun, it has the idea of being exalted or having splendor, having fame, renown, beauty, magnification, being glorious. So God has glory. So when Jesus asks the Father to glorify him as a verb, he's asking to be honored. By the Father. And when he talks about a glory that he had before the world existed, he's speaking of being in the state of being magnificently exalted. Glorious. 
It really shouldn't surprise us that this is what Jesus' prayer focused on and was all about at the foundational level. This is what really he focused his entire ministry on and all his teachings on. Everything he did was with the explicit purpose to bring glory to his Father. He might not have said as much all the time, but he easily displayed as much. Did you know that this is why you were created? You know that? To display God's glory. To bring glory to Him. If you're searching for a purpose of life, stop searching. This is it. The purpose of life, the purpose of your life, is to glorify God. If you wonder how to make wise decisions or to do the right thing in life, living by the principle we find in 1 Corinthians 10.31 is very appropriate. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. This is the purpose of the universe, purpose of the world, the purpose of the spiritual realm, of all of history. You can see our mission statement, and even as our purpose as a church, On the front of your bulletins, we have our mission statement, and it describes our goal of developing disciples of Jesus and the means to do so by prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit. But the ultimate purpose we exist is the first two words, glorifying God. It's why we exist. In these verses here in John 17, we see some of the inner workings of the Trinity. We see the Father and the Son mutually glorifying each other. In verse 1, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Now, we, of course, can't understand much of how the Trinity actually works. One God in three persons. We can't quite wrap our minds around that. So don't worry if the Trinity confuses you some. That's okay. It should. It means you're not infinite. But there is no question, biblically, that there is one God. There's only one God. Jesus even says that here in verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. The only true God. And there is also no doubt that this one God is revealed in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is God. The Son, Jesus, is God. The Holy Spirit is God. One of the things we see here is that the three persons of the Trinity are in perfect relationship with each other. There's the Father loves the Son perfectly. The Son loves the Father perfectly. All three mutually love each other, serve each other, glorify each other. There is no hint of suppression, envy, or selfishness within the Trinity. The love that they have for each other really is the perfect example of love for us to live by. And since God as a whole deserves all the glory in the universe, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all deserve that glory. And they lovingly share it freely amongst each other. Now, I don't want to confuse you at all here, but you might have a couple questions as you read these verses. You might have noticed in verse 3 that Jesus seems to differentiate between himself and God where he says that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But this does not at all 
mean that Jesus wasn't God. In fact, when Jesus asked the Father to glorify the Son, speaking of himself, that request was actually a claim of deity. Did you know that? Isaiah 42.8, God says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. So by asking the Father to glorify the Son, Jesus was effectively claiming to be God. Because God does not share glory outside of himself. This is certainly an aspect of this prayer that we can't copy. (laughs) We cannot ask God to glorify us. But we can pray that God would continue to glorify himself through our lives, in our lives, and in the lives of those around us, and in our church, and in our homes. We can pray that. Even in what has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer, how does that prayer start? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Honored or glorified be your name. Another question you might have looking at this passage is we're talking about the Trinity. Well, where is the Holy Spirit in these, in these verses here? Jesus doesn't mention the Spirit in these verses, but trust me, Jesus was not ignoring the Spirit. In fact, in the long talk, these three chapters leading up to these verses, there are three distinct times that Jesus speaks at length about the Holy Spirit. You can look them up if you want. John 14, verses 15 to 27. John 15, verse 26. And in 16, verses 4 to 15. These are some of the most in-depth and descriptive passages about the Spirit found in all of Scripture. So much of what we know about the Holy Spirit comes from these verses. So Jesus is not ignoring the Holy Spirit. He just happens in these verses to be focusing on his relationship with his Father. The biggest question, though, you might have is a big one. And that is, isn't it selfish for God to be all about his own glory? Do you think that? It seems that way sometimes. After all, it would be wrong for us humans to do this, because we don't deserve it. It's selfish, and it's self-centered. If I claim to be deserving of glory, it would be wrong and sinful, because I'm not. It would be lying. It would be prideful. It would be blasphemous. However, it's not wrong for God to pursue what is rightfully his and exclusively his. I've said this before, but in fact, it would be wrong for God to not pursue all the glory. That would violate his nature as God, as a perfectly good and sinless being. Yes, get this, God is self-centered. Okay, But it's not wrong to be self-centered if your self is perfect in every way. Imagine if you're a student taking an exam. Many of you don't have to imagine very hard. You might be just finished or are taking them now. Some of you are probably thinking, don't talk to me about school and church. I'm, I'm almost free or I'm finally free. <laughs> I don't have to think about that for another couple months. So I apologize. Just imagine with me. Okay? Imagine if you took a really difficult exam and somehow you got a perfect score whether how, how realistic or unrealistic that is for you. Okay, you got a perfect score, 100 out of 100 points, 100% right, A+, plus, smiley face and a sticker from your teacher. <laughs> and 
And then after the exam was over, one of your classmates stole your report card and tried to forge their name onto it, claimed that that perfect score was actually theirs. How would you feel? You'd be outraged, right? You you were the one who earned that grade. You deserved it. They didn't have the perfect score, so they couldn't rightfully claim the honor that goes along with being perfect. But you did. You did deserve that perfect score. So, it, And it isn't selfish to insist to receive what you deserve. You get that? What you actually deserve, it's not selfish to insist to receive that. And so if God deserves all the glory, it's not selfish for him to ask to receive that. Similar to God. Except, this is the big difference between that example and God. God is perfect in everything. Not just a little test. He deserves the glory that goes along with being God and is right to insist on it. So if Jesus' prayer was first and foremost, and rightfully so, focused on God's glory, you might ask, what actually brought glory to God through this prayer? What did he pray that brought glory to God? How did Jesus bring glory to the Father, or the Father glorify the Son? And answering this question, I believe, should show us ways that we can be involved in extending God's glory, bringing further glory to God. How to better and more appropriately also to pray with God's glory in mind. I've identified three ways that this prayer shows God receiving the glory he deserves. Okay? First one is this. Jesus' prayer was primarily about God's glory, which comes, this glory comes through the giving of eternal life. God's glory is revealed when he delights in graciously giving people eternal life. We see this in how Jesus desired to bring glory to the Father. Read with me from verse 1. He prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus wanted to bring glory to God by granting eternal life to people. That was his desire. And God gave him the authority to do this. And Jesus wanted to exercise that authority. Eternal means everlasting, never-ending, going on forever, without end. So, eternal life means life that never ends. We all have lives that will end one day. We have what you might call non-eternal life. If we want to live on past death, God has to give us eternal life by grace. We want to have life that never ends. And Jesus says he wants to give eternal life to people. It's a gift. It's not something that we inherently possess. It's not something that we deserve. You might ask, well, how does God get glory by giving us a gift? It seems like we're the actual beneficiaries here, right? But God gets the glory because him giving us a gift displays his character, displays who he is, all who, what he's about. It displays his love, his grace, his kindness, his generosity. Displays who he is. Verse 3 gives a very interesting definition 
of eternal life. Did you see that? Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This doesn't change the basic definition of eternal life as life never-ending. It adds to it. Okay? This makes it clear that eternal life is not just conscious, unending existence. Okay? That's not what it is. You're not just aware of yourself. No, eternal life consists of more than that. It means getting to know God himself. Knowing God is not just knowing about God. It's not just intellectual knowledge. For example, I could get to know all kinds of things about Eric Carlson, the Ottawa Senators' young Norris Trophy-winning defenseman. I could learn all about him. But even if I know everything about him, I still don't know Eric Carlson. You get the difference? I can be a world-renowned theologian and know everything we know as humans about God and still not know God as my Savior, my Lord, my Comforter, my Friend. The word know here that Jesus uses is actually the same word that the Bible uses to describe sexual intimacy. As in, Adam knew his wife Eve. Now, don't get me wrong, our relationship with God is not sexual. That is not what this says. But, knowing God contains the idea of an intimate relationship and fellowship with Him. That's what it means to know God. Having an intimate relationship with Him. Now, you might ask, well, how should this aspect of Jesus' prayer affect our prayers? Well, we can certainly pray that eternal life would keep being given to those around us. It is a good thing to pray for people's souls and their eternal destiny. And ultimately, when we pray for people to accept the gift of eternal life, we're praying that God's glory would be revealed in their life. That's That's what we're doing when we pray for that. Of course, we can also pray with the purpose of developing our relationship with God, of knowing Him or talking to Him, getting to know Him as your friend, as your comforter in all seasons of life. Well, the second way that we see God's glory come in this prayer really is intertwined with the first. The second point explains how Jesus can even offer us eternal life. See, Jesus' prayer was primarily focused on God's glory, which came through the giving of himself. The Father and the Son were glorified through Jesus giving up himself to death. This is what Jesus was thinking when he said in verse 4. He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. When Jesus talked about the work the Father gave him to do, he's referring to his preaching and teaching, his miracles, his disciples' training, But most of all, he's referring to the work of the cross. You might have heard the term before, the finished work of the cross. And no, this work hadn't been fully accomplished when he prayed this. But Jesus was prophetically looking ahead to the near and certain ends of this earthly life. 
It was happening the very next day. One scholar says that even though the cross was future, it was a certainty. It was coming. And that certain future was coming to pass the very next day when Jesus was hanging on a cross, dying for the sins of the world, for you and for me. When I go to work during the week, I do it for a variety of reasons. Practically, I go to work to pay the bills and to support my wife and son. I love them, and so I want to work hard to supply for their needs. I also go to work because I love being your pastor. God has gifted me in certain ways that I feel fulfilled in doing the ministry, and I love to see people growing in their faith. It really fuels me in my life. I also have a responsibility. I signed a contract. I don't want you all to fire me. (laughs) The job has to get done, and no one besides myself is responsible for doing it. And on the grand scheme of things, I go to work to see God's kingdom extend. Hopefully, little by little, I'll work to see the Holy Spirit work through me to do this. Well, Jesus went to work on earth for many reasons, too. And he ultimately went to the cross for many reasons. But the primary one, the most important one, contrary to popular belief, was in order to glorify the Father. Yes, he did it in order to love us. And yes, he did it in order to forgive us, and in order to crush Satan and and defeat sin. But first in his mind was the glory of God being displayed. And the glory of God being displayed in the gospel was almost reaching his pinnacle. The cross was imminent. It would bring glory to God. Jesus had just said earlier in John 13, he had said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, at once. And here in Jesus' prayer in chapter 17, he said, The hour has come. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Amazingly, not only did the Son glorify the Father by going to the cross, the Father also glorified the Son through the cross. You see that in verse 1? The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. You think, well, how in the world could something so agonizing and painful as a cross be glorifying? The cross was shocking, gory, and excruciating to the Son. Not glorious. But that's not true. The cross did display God's glory in amazing ways. Just like the giving of eternal life, really the cross displayed God to the world. It displayed his essence, his nature, his character to everyone who saw. It displayed all, really, of God's attributes coming together in one event. His holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his wrath poured out on sin. At the same time as his love and his mercy and his grace and his peace and his patience poured out on sinners. It shouted God's glory to the world. Ironically, 
Jesus became arguably the most unglorified person in the world in order to display glory the most vividly. Besides, the cross didn't end in disgrace, did it? What happened afterwards? Jesus did not stay dead. He gloriously came back to life and was ascended back into heaven onto his throne. And like our first point said, at that point he was able to offer eternal life to all who would receive it. I ask you this this morning. Has the cross changed your life yet to the glory of God? Has your life displayed God's glory? If not, God's glory can breathtakingly be displayed in you today. Amazingly so. Your sins can be forgiven. Your life can be transformed. All because Jesus accomplished the work God sent him to do. Will you let him change you today? Please come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to help you make this decision, to give Jesus control of your life in order to glorify God with it. In that, you will find your true purpose in life. And as for how this point impacts our own prayer life, all of our prayer life, Jesus' finished work on the cross should be a recurring theme of our prayers both in thankfulness for it and in praying for the furthering of its message in any and all ways. As much as Jesus was looking ahead to the cross, in this prayer, I believe he was also looking past the cross. He was looking beyond. He knew what would come after, and that gave him the strength to face the coming storm. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. I said earlier that the cross was God's glory reaching its pinnacle, but that's not entirely true. That was its reaching its earthly pinnacle. But God's glory has just kept increasing ever since that day in heaven. And it will keep doing so on into eternity. That's what the final point from this passage tells us, that Jesus' prayer was primarily for God's glory, which continues to come through the giving of exaltation. God's glory has continued in heaven as Jesus has been restored to full glory. That's what verse 5 tells us Jesus was especially looking forward to. It says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus knew from experience what he was missing by not being in heaven. He longed for that heavenly glory that he had experienced with the Father from before time began and longed to be restored to that. The truth that 
Jesus is now re-glorified in heaven, in the Father's presence, is often overlooked, I think, in our lives. But this fact gives us great certainty and hope in our faith. Warren Wearsby, a scholar, says this, There is in heaven today a glorified man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because he has been glorified in heaven, sinners can be saved on earth. He is the hope of our salvation, the certainty of the forgiveness of our sins. If Christ was not glorified in heaven, there would be no hope for us to be glorified one day. And this truth should also give us great confidence in our prayers. Because Jesus, our great high priest, intercedes for us now in heaven. Our prayers go to the Father through the Son. We pray in Jesus' name. And thus our prayers prayed in God's name and in His will have the power of God's Son. So pray with confidence and assurance that God hears and answers prayer. God answered this prayer of Jesus with resounding power. And I believe that that's because it had the glory of God at its heart. We should pray. We should pray for the glory of God to be displayed in and through our lives. In your forgiven past, in your sanctifying presence, present, and in your glorified future. It would all go back to God. For He deserves it. I'm going to leave you with one of the most famous passages in the Bible. From Philippians chapter 2. You're all very familiar with it. But this passage reflects the truths of this prayer of Jesus that we read today. I want you to listen to these words with Jesus' prayer in mind. Notice the similarities and see the glory which motivated everything that Jesus did. This is what it says in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, so because Jesus died for God's glory, therefore God, the Father, has highly exalted Him, Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what's the last seven words say? To the glory of God the Father. That every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the glory? Let us pray that everything we do can play some small part in furthering that same glory. Let's pray. God, you are glorious. You are mighty. You are powerful. 
You are loving, you're gracious, you're holy. You're righteous and just. We thank you for the gifts that you've given us. The gift of grace, the gift of mercy, the gift of eternal life. We're blown away by your grace, God. Help us to see your glory, for who, see you for who you are. And help it to continually change us, to become more like you in our lives. Help our lives to display that glory to the world around us. For you deserve all the glory that we could ever dream of giving you. Yes, this in Jesus' name. Amen.